Great, thank you, Glenn. Thank you for Lance for uh, reading from God's Word, for John for that powerful testimony, and for the worship team for really just setting this stage as we can sing and uh, worship our, our wonderful God. So welcome on this second week of Advent where the, 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 this week's focus is um, peace. Last week we focused on hope. Two more weeks of Advent then as we prepare for the coming of uh, Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas. Um, I wanted to start with a famous story that some of you may have heard before called the Christmas Truce. On Christmas Eve in 1914, in the muddy trenches of the Western Front of the First World War, a remarkable thing happened. It remains one of the strangest moments of the Great War or of any war in history. British machine gunner Bruce Barron's father wrote about it in his memoirs. Like most of his fellow infantrymen, he was spending the holiday eve shivering in the muck, trying to keep warm. At about 10 p.m., Barnes' father noticed a noise. I listened, he recalled. Away across the field, among the dark shadows beyond, I could hear the murmur of voices. The Germans were singing carols as it was Christmas Eve. In the darkness, some of the British soldiers began to sing back. Suddenly, Barnes' father recalled, we heard a confused shouting from the other side. We all stopped to listen and the shout came again. The voice was from an enemy soldier speaking in English with a strong German accent. He was saying, come over here. One of the British sergeants answered, you come halfway and I'll come halfway. What happened next would in the years to come stun the world and make history. Enemy soldiers began to climb nervously out of their trenches and to meet in the barbed wire filled no man's land that separated the armies. There were handshakes and words of kindness. The soldiers traded songs, tobacco and wine, joining in a spontaneous holiday party in the cold night. In the midst of the atrocities of the First World War, there was a brief moment of peace. Peace is something that we all want, both in our personal lives and for the world around us. In the past year, we've probably prayed for peace more than just about anything else in relation to Ukraine and now Israel and Gaza. This time of year, we often think about peace and a common verse we reference during Christmas time is Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love the sound of that, of the no end to the increase of peace. And peace is a major theme through the Bible. And today we're just gonna scratch the surface of what the birth of Jesus means for us in terms of peace as we get ready to celebrate Christmas. But before we do that, let's pause and pray. Dear Lord, in this Advent season, as we prepare for the coming of our Savior, we all desire a greater peace in our lives and in the world. We pray that you would teach us from your scripture what peace truly means. Help us to put aside our own human thinking and to focus our hearts on what you would have to say to each one of us here today. So what exactly is peace? As I've thought and prayed about this over the past several weeks as I prepared for this morning, I've come to think that there are at least two types of peace 
a piece of subtraction and a piece of addition. First, let's focus on a piece of subtraction, by which I mean achieving peace by taking things away. During the pandemic, there was a surge in home remodeling as people spent much more time in their houses. I was part of that trend, and I took on the project of building a deck in my backyard. Our decks, sorry, our yard is not very big, and what we do have is sloped. It's not a steep slope, but it's just enough that you can't really put a table or chairs in our yard without just kind of sliding off onto the grass. So a few years ago, I decided to build a flat deck, and we now have a table and chairs out there where we can eat outdoors. And even better, we bought some really comfortable patio furniture we can lounge and relax outside. Um, at least when the weather's nice, uh, and sitting out there with a book or a cup of coffee is now one of my favorite things to do in our home. It's my happy place. When I sit out there, I feel at peace. At least, of course, until our neighbors decide that is just the right time to mow their lawn. It's, without fail, that's always the timing that seems to happen. Um, when I sit out there, I feel at peace, but why is it peaceful? And when I thought about it, I thought because when I'm sitting out there, I'm not really doing anything else. I'm not thinking about my work. I'm not thinking about the things that I need to get done. I'm not thinking about the many problems in the world. I've subtracted all of those things in my life that can get in the way of feeling peaceful. This way of thinking about peace is captured nicely by something many of us probably say on a regular basis. And I want you to complete the following sentence. All I want is peace and quiet, exactly. What is your happy place where you can find rest in this kind of peace? How do we apply this logic of peace of subtraction to other aspects of our life in the world? Well, one way you can think about this is what is the opposite of peace? And I think one answer to that question is conflict. Conflict is an opposite, and we live in a world filled with conflict. Maybe you have conflict in your relationships right now. Maybe you've, maybe you've prayed many times that the conflict in your life would end, that it would just be subtracted so that you could have peace. My siblings and I still joke that when we were growing up, our mother would always say, I just want you to stop fighting and get along. Maybe you've prayed that for your family. Isn't that what we pray so often for the world, that the ongoing conflicts would just cease so we could have peace? The thinking is that if we could just subtract the conflict, peace is what would be left. But is peace really the absence of conflict? It's a type of peace but not necessarily the peace that Jesus calls us to. So now let's turn to the verses that Lance read in the book of Ephesians. It teaches us a lot about peace, and in particular it teaches us about two specific types of peace, vertical and horizontal peace. First, let's talk about the vertical peace. Going back to, a chapter, to chapter two, verse 11, therefore remember, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus at a time when there was a lot of internal conflict in the church between two groups of believers, those who were coming out of a Jewish background and those who were not. To the Jewish culture, anyone who was not a Jew was referred to as a Gentile. For hundreds of years, the nation of Israel sought to follow the covenant that God had provided with them, to obey the laws and commandments as a means of reaching God, of achieving peace. Israel had the law as a means of being right with God, although the whole Old Testament tells of their repeated failure to live up to that standard. Regarding the Gentiles, verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a strong end to that verse, that the Gentiles were without God, and without hope. They were on the outside looking in. Maybe you've felt that, felt that sense of hopelessness without God, without peace. Maybe you've sat in this very room feeling like you're the outsider looking in at people who have a relationship with God and when you do not, and have desired to have what they have. Or maybe you are a believer, but you see others with a deeper faith and you long to experience what they experience, to have the peace that they seem to have. So if we go back to verse 15, continue, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So vertical restoration of all believers to God is possible through the work of Jesus. More specifically, through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection to life, which provided a means of restoring our relationship to God. He invites the outsiders to come inside. This fits so nicely with the Hebrew word shalom that's translated as peace. But shalom is more than peace. It refers to wholeness, to restoration of relationship. In the language of the New Testament, the Greek word irene, which is also translated as peace, means a state of freedom from anxiety and inner turmoil, harmonious relationships. Both languages paint such a wonderful picture of peace through restored relationship with God. This is a piece of addition, of bringing together God and humanity. Now, if you've been paying attention to the passage, you may be thinking that it all started with something that I have been missing, and that I've been ignoring an important principle of how to read and understand the Bible. Verse 11 started with a therefore, and you probably heard, many of you have heard before, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? 
It's an important word, a nice transition word, that states that what is about to be said is a natural consequence or flows from what came before it. So we need to look at the preceding verses to really understand what's happening in these verses we've been reading. So let's move earlier to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, <clears throat> following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, <clears throat> excuse me, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we already discussed the fact that we're separated from God without the saving death of Jesus. But it's actually even worse than that. Verse 1 states that we were dead in our sin, not just separated, but dead. We followed the desires of our body and our mind and were children of wrath. It's hard to imagine a condition further from peace than being under the wrath of God, of being spiritually dead. But yet, even in this condition, God chose to offer us peace despite our unworthiness. In verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I really love that phrase, but God. We're a mess, but God. The world is broken, but God. The second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians also teaches us about horizontal peace. Jesus had introduced a new covenant that was open to everyone, Jew or Gentile. And through this covenant, Jew and Gentile can be part of the same family. As it says in verse 14, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. In verse 15, he created in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace. And in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, meaning the Gentiles, and those who were near, meaning the Jews. Here we see peace as a result of Jesus eliminating the barriers between people, restoring relationships. We can think of this type of peace between Jews and Gentiles as a horizontal shalom, a horizontal peace, as restoration among groups of people that is possible only because of our vertical restoration. This too is a piece of addition, by which I mean peace is achieved by bringing people together, by restoring relationships. I don't know about you, but I've often felt like life would be so much easier so much more peaceful if it just wasn't for the people. 
But that would be a superficial level of peace. That would not provide the true peace that comes from restorative relationships with others. As we look out in the world today, clearly there's not much horizontal wholeness going on. Conflict both within and between nations is the norm. Sadly, this is even true of the church at times. In many times in church history, we've been characterized by conflict rather than restoration. We've spent more of our energy arguing about the right type of worship music, um, how we should dress in church, or what political views we should be supporting than we do seeking to restore relationships with each other. As I look out at this church body, I'm thankful that this type of conflict does not seem to be our usual pattern. Not that we're immune to it, but I don't believe it is our normal way of relating to each other. But I pray that we would become more and more a whole body with even less division. So let's propose a hypothetical situation. What if a true desire for peace spread across the world to such an extent that there was widespread horizontal restoration and world peace? That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But would that be enough? While world peace would be indeed a wonderful thing to see, it would be limited to Earth and would do nothing to restore heaven and Earth together, to restore us to the way things began. Jesus' death on the cross accomplished both of these with one fell swoop, both horizontal and vertical restoration, or wholeness, or peace, shalom. A peace of addition, humanity plus God. Verse 10 goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So while we can't earn our peace with God through our works, it does not mean we should just sit back and do nothing in our salvation. God desires not only to bring mercy, love, and peace to us, but for us to bring his peace to the world. We're called to bring horizontal restoration to others. Not just the absence of conflict, but true relational wholeness. But again, if all we do is seek horizontal restoration. We may have peace with those in our lives, but they may still die without the vertical restoration required for an eternity of peace. We're also called to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, to plant the seeds for vertical wholeness and peace. So I like the sound of that, vertical and horizontal restoration. But what exactly do restored relationships look like? I believe one of the clearest pictures we have is provided in the creation account in the book of Genesis. God created the world, including human beings, and in verse 25 of chapter 2, after Adam and Eve were created, it states, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before the fall broke humanity's relationship with God and with each other, there was wholeness, characterized in part by a lack of shame. Shame and embarrassment are some of the most powerful emotions that we have. We will go to great lengths to avoid feeling embarrassed. To avoid shame, I try to keep you from seeing certain aspects of who I am. I may not share with you what I'm thinking or feeling because you might not like what I have to say and I'm concerned that you might think less of me. 
What parts of yourself do you keep from others because of fear and shame of what they might think? Foolishly, we also try to hide these parts of ourselves from God, as if that were somehow possible. When we pray, we often talk with God about the more acceptable parts of our life, and we avoid talking about the parts that we feel shame about. We present ourselves well on the outside without revealing what's really happening on the inside. If I'm feeling shame and holding back important parts of myself, our relationship is not whole. What if I knew that you loved and cared for me so much that I could reveal the deepest parts of my soul and know that you will still love me? Not that you would necessarily like everything that I am thinking or doing, but that I would know that that would not stop you from loving me. And that I, in return, provided that same relationship with you. Can you imagine what our relationships would be like without that constant fear and shame? How freeing that would be. That is a relationship of wholeness that can truly bring us peace. And this is what God offers us and calls us to. We were dead in our sins, but God desired a relationship with us, not because of who we were and are, but in spite of it. I pray that we as a church would learn to develop these types of relationships with each other. So Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus gives us a picture of what true peace, true shalom can look like. It also points to a saving faith in Jesus as the only means of achieving true peace. But there's a subtle point being made here that I want to make sure we don't miss. Peace is not something we can pursue directly, but it rather is the result of a relationship with Jesus. Even more, verse 14 tells us that Jesus himself is peace. It is his very nature and being. He is truly the Prince of Peace. The harder we work to create peace on our own strength, the less we may be focused on God, paradoxically taking us further away from the only means of true peace. In chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he lists the fruit of the Spirit. Peace is one of the fruit that's on that list. And the metaphor of fruit here conveys a lot of meaning, a lot of truth. Let's say you wanted to grow some apples. You wouldn't actually grow apples. You would grow an apple tree, and you cultivate it in order that the tree would produce apples, that the tree would produce fruit. In the same way, you can't produce shalom directly, but rather you can cultivate a relationship with Christ first and then with others, which can then produce the fruit of peace. Peace is the result of restored relationships. So does this mean I have to stop sitting on my desk as a means of peace? Well, that depends. We often go to great lengths to pursue a piece of subtraction. We take up hobbies that we enjoy that provide distraction from the cares of the world. For me, that's doing puzzles. I can sit for hours on end with a puzzle and completely tune out the world around me. Sometimes this looks like focusing on our homes with remodeling, interior design, these days decorating our homes to until they, for Christmas until they're worthy of posting on Pinterest. Our home becomes our own oasis where we can retreat from the world around us. Sometimes we move to quieter communities where we can have more peace and quiet. 
Now, I want to be clear, none of these are bad things unless they become the thing. If that type of piece, a piece of subtraction, is the primary focus of your energy, then at best, you're settling for a lesser type of piece. At worst, peace itself can become an idol that we place before our relationship with God. Those things can become more important than spending time with God or living out our faith. They can also get in the way of our relationships with other people. So we share at our house, we share a driveway with the house next to us, and our houses in our neighborhood are fairly close together. So when I'm sitting out on our deck, it's not at all unusual that I can see neighbors from two to three doors down on both sides. So there's not a lot of privacy oftentimes. Sometimes I even like to go online and look at houses that are for sale. And I sound my, find myself drawn to houses that are surrounded by trees that I imagine would create a really peaceful environment in which to live. But then I consider how that would create distance between us and our neighbors, making it more difficult to form restorative relationships and to share the gospel. We often use the language here of living at our faith on our front lines. And it's a lot more difficult to do that if we retreat from our front lines to hunker down in a bunker. Placing too high of a priority on a, the pursuit of a piece of subtraction can indicate that we've lost sight of what's truly important. But a piece of subtraction can also be a means of slowing down our frantic pace of life to reduce distractions and have more of a focus on God. It's the norm in our culture to live very busy lives. We're often running between work, school, activities, and lots of other really good things. We have a lot to learn from cultures that take a slower pace to life, a slower approach. Our lives are often so busy that it's easy to be in a constant state of distraction that interferes with really living out our faith and focusing on God. Taking time to do less can be a way of being intentional to slow down and spend time with God. Even Jesus took time by himself to pray. So sometimes we need to subtract in order to add. But what if as a follower of Christ, I don't feel at peace? There is certainly an emotional component to peace. And when I sit out on my deck, I certainly do feel peaceful. But peace is more than just an emotion. Peace describes the state of being in relationship with Jesus. For those of us who are Christ followers, we are by definition in a state of peace, even if it may not feel that way. In looking for an example uh, uh, that can characterize this, I was thinking about the relationship that we of a nation have with Canada. There's generally a good relationship between the US and Canada. Um, I would not call it a restored relationship, but we're on friendly terms and we're not in conflict. Um, but imagine you're in one of the many countries around the world where they are filled with conflict. There's open conflict, war between neighboring countries. Ukraine and Russia, Israel and Gaza are good examples of this. Living in open conflict like that robs us of feeling peaceful. But we have the luxury of not being in that situation here in the US. So we have this peace with Canada, but we take it for granted. I, I don't know how often like you think, boy, it's really great to be at peace with Canada. I don't normally think about that. The peace is there, but we take it for granted. We're not really embracing what that peace means. Similarly, in our relationship to God, 
The peace is there if we have that relationship with him, but we often take it for granted and lose sight of it. We get so focused on wanting to feel peaceful that we miss out on the true peace that actually already may exist in our lives. So as we continue in this Advent season and approach the celebration of Christmas Day, we can turn our hearts to the true source of peace. If you're going to be off from school, off from work, by all means, enjoy doing less. If you're able to have some rest during Christmas, that's wonderful. But don't settle for just that type of peace. In Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, we see the angels proclaiming to the shepherds in the field, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. If you're a follower of Jesus, his peace rests on you. This Christmas, seek to deepen your relationship with God to take a step closer to fulfilling that wholeness, the shalom that he offers. Spend time with him in prayer, in reading his word, in singing songs of praise. Seek also to deepen your relationship with others. Spend time with other believers and allow your restored relationship with God to bring greater restoration with each other. Maybe consider taking a step towards opening up to each other more, to being more vulnerable to the things that may cause you shame or embarrassment. Spend time with people who don't currently follow Jesus and let them know about the peace that only he can offer. Invite them to experience the wholeness that only he can provide. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. You are by very, your very nature the source of peace. We thank you that you invite us into a relationship of wholeness, of shalom, that will bring us that peace. Help us to pursue that type of peace and also to then bring that to our restoration of, with others. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to just prepare for your coming as we get ready to celebrate Christmas. Help us to leave with a peace that transcends all understanding. 